What does it mean to love one's country? If the powers that be were ordained by God, does that mean we shouldn't criticize them? What about expressions of patriotism in our church worship, using religious language and celebrating national holidays? Is civil religion a bad thing or on balance a good thing? We'll be answering these questions and more with our guest, Dr. Rich Mao, in his book, How to Be a Patriotic Christian. I'm your host, Scott Ray. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell. This is Think Biblically, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. Rich, thanks so much for being with us. Loved your book. Uh, Your subtitle is Love of Country as Love of Neighbor. Tell us a little bit more about how you connect those two things explicitly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, I, you know, there's a sense in which uh, our country is full of neighbors. (laughs) And uh, so it's the idea of neighbor love and what it means to love our neighbor, I think certainly applies to the our neighbor in in its collectivity and its uh, as as a nation, for example. And I do think that we ought to love our country. My sense is that uh, uh, the Bible calls us to uh, nurture those relationships in which the Lord has placed us. And so obviously I'm going to love the United States more than I love Bolivia or Nicaragua uh, because it's it's my country, just as uh, I, I actually use a little bit of this at the beginning of the book, just as I'm going to feel about my family differently than I feel like all the other families of the earth, you know? Sure. Um, So there's a a very special relationship that each of us has to his or her own country. And I do think that it has to be a loving relationship because the Bible commands us to, to love our neighbors. And we certainly need to do that in terms of the collectivity of our, of our neighbors. Rich, I'm really curious. You have been writing and speaking for a number of years. So why personally for you did you write this book? And is it does it have something to do with our current polarized culture that prompted you additionally to focus on uh, patriotism and what it means? Yeah, no question that it has to do with uh, where we are um, during the uh, run up to the last election campaign. And indeed, uh, after that campaign, um, after the election, I I talked to a lot of pastors groups and talked to a lot of church groups, you know, mainly uh, virtually. And the whole idea of uh, how do we how do we show Christian love to people with whom we disagree has been a really big topic uh, on the minds of uh, people. Uh, active in the life of the church, and uh, it's really tied in with uh, how do we, how we feel about our country. There's another aspect of it too. You know, I'm a child of the '60s. I I did a lot of protesting during the <laughs> 1960s on secular university campuses when I was working on my my PhD. I was an opponent at the time of the Vietnam War. I was concerned about civil rights and was very active in those kinds of things. And, uh, and you know, I had a lot of uh, struggles with patriotism at the time because patriotic people would say to me, hey, if you don't like it, leave it. You know, love it or leave it. Uh, 
that kind of thing. And yet I was very concerned uh, to show that uh, I was in a lover's quarrel with my country on a couple of things and that it did not in any way extend to all of the basic things that I care about and that I love about the United States of America. So I wanted to get clear about that in my own mind. You know, as you guys know, we we often start writing in order to clarify our own thinking. Exactly. This was a book that helped me clarify my own thinking. So, Rich, in what sense do you believe that the United States is unique or exceptional? Well, I mean, the obvious sense that I just said, it's unique to me because it's my country. Um, I do think the United States is a is a great country. I, I think that in many ways we have uh, uh, we have, we have dealt with issues of uh, human freedom, of uh, toleration, of uh, pluralism. Uh, it, you know, many people, Father Richard Newhouse, always like to talk about the uh, the great American experiment. And uh, you know, we don't think so much of the uh, the Welsh experiment, <laughs> sure. or the Belgium experiment. Uh, the United States came on the scene uh, to try to do something new, and it is a model for other nations. You know, uh, you know, you, you you folks are familiar with the kinds of uh, seminars and at homes that the Amundsens uh, put on. And I remember uh, the Yale scholar, the late and, and uh, much much which missed uh, Lamansani talking about being raised in his African country, the Gambia, that uh, had just recently attained, attained uh, independent status from, from its colonial days. And he said, as school children, uh, we, uh, we read and discussed and memorized parts of Abraham Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address. And we also talked about and memorized the uh, prologue to the American Constitution, you know, that in order to perform a more more perfect union, and what does it mean for us in our country to form a perfect union? Uh, We have have had an influence among the nations that uh, has been unique, I think. And we've done a lot of good things in all of that. Quick follow-up on that, Rich. is there any sense in which you believe that the United States is is unique or exceptional in a theological sense? Well, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. And I do think God has given the United States of America a lot. Um, I don't know that it's more than God has given to uh, Great Britain or to some other countries on the face of the earth. But... Uh, I do think that just the fact that we have gained influence in God's providence among the nations, that uh, we have marvelous opportunities and we have very important obligations, I think. Uh, So I would not want to say that um, we have a favored status, that God loves us more than God loves people in, in Nicaragua. Uh, but I do think as a nation, uh, we have a role among the nations that's uh, pretty important. And I think that's empirically demonstrable. But I, 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 I don't like the idea, as you can imagine, you know, that, uh, that we are God's favored nation, uh, that we are above, above criticism because God is working through us and 
in, in special ways, and we ought not to in any way uh, criticize the way God is working through us. No, I don't, I don't think it's theological in that sense. That, that's an important balance that you talk about, that we can love our country, but that doesn't mean ignoring its sins and its mistakes. In fact, if we love it, we should talk about those. So I think that's a really helpful point. One of the other points you do is you draw a distinction between a nation and a state. Can you tell us what that difference is and why it's important to understand? Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I began thinking of this a couple of years ago uh, because. Uh, a nation is a peoplehood, and a state is a kind of pattern of administration, you know, patterns of governing. And when we talk about, you know, as, as I mentioned in my book, before I started writing the book, I, I went through all of the patriotic songs and said, you know, when we talk about loving America, what do we love? And, and I came up with three categories. The one is natural wonders, you know. Purple mountains, majesties, uh, fruited plains, <laughs> rocks and rills, uh, all of those things. And there, there is a lot to love about. Uh, and we, we are blessed in having uh, wonderful natural wonders and national parks that are set aside for that. Uh, secondly, uh, we have uh, some things that we love in our history. There are some wonderful things in our history. And... Uh, and then thirdly, ideals of freedom and liberty and law and the like. And, you know, when we sing those songs, uh, nobody would ever think to write a patriotic song about the uh, Department of Motor, v Motor Vehicles <laughs> or about the local zoning, the local zoning board. You know, uh, those are the uh, mechanistic instruments of governing that are very important. But that's not what we're loyal to. That's not what we what we love. And so um, it, it's very important that we have that sense of peoplehood. And that sense of peoplehood has to be preserved in, in distinct and significant ways. And we've been losing a lot of that. You know, we've had these uh, these writings in recent years. Uh, Robert Putnam from Harvard and his book Bowling Alone. You know, saying that. Uh, uh, you know, bowling alone that has to do with the fact that fewer, that more people bowl than ever, but fewer people bowl on bowling teams. And so bowling is not the social teamwork things that it was, once was. That's bad for bowling alleys because they make a lot of their money on pizza and beer and Coke and all the rest. And, uh, and so bowling alone is a loss of what he calls social capital. PTA meetings have been more sparse than they used to be. The Rotary Club, uh, the scouting movement, and, and the like. And uh, we, we've lost some of those bonds that we had that bring us together with other citizens, neighborhood associations, and, and all the rest. And uh, those are very important to the life of a nation, uh, to our peoplehood. And that's where I also think civil religion is important. That uh, it's a good thing that uh, we get together and and we hear, say, a president talk about uh, that our job as a as a people is uh, not to have God on our side, but our 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 assignment is to be on God's side to do God's work. Amen. Here, here. You know, Rich. One of the things I pre so appreciate about your book. 
is that you tackle a number of the central passages of Scripture that speak to our relationship to government. Uh, in fact, one of the ones that I think was most helpful is when you explain what Jesus meant when he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. How do, how do you understand those particular words of Jesus? Well, I, I, that that uh, we have to be sure that we what we give to Caesar, Caesar has a right to. Hmm. And uh, and, it's, and 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 you know Caesar is not God. In fact, Jesus was sort of toying with his audience at at that point because it was a whole series of things where. Uh, they were trying to trip him up, you know. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And then Jesus says, "Well, show me a coin." And they show him a coin, and he says, "Whose picture is that?" Well, Caesar. Well, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. But you know, the fact that Caesar puts his picture on gold doesn't mean that gold belongs to Caesar. Uh, gold belongs to God, and uh, so whatever we owe to Caesar it has uh, limits in the light of what we really owe to God. And we don't owe to Caesar ultimate loyalty, uncritical obedience. Uh, now, Caesar there is a way of talking about our government. You know, we're not a monarchy, so um, what we owe to the United States uh, is uh, has to be understood in terms, as Christians, has to be understood in terms of what a government has a right to ask of, of us in the light of what God requires of us as his disciples. You've got another interesting take on some passages in the Bible, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, which talk about submission to the government, honoring the emperor, and also the idea of Acts 4.25, where we are to obey God rather than men or human rulers. Uh, talk about how you see those passages and how it relates to this larger question of patriotism. Well, I do, I do think, and you know, the, the word honor comes through clearly in First Peter two. Uh, the the apostle gives four commands in one in one verse. We're to fear the Lord. That's phobeo, fear phobia. Uh, we are to agape love the church. That's a very intense kind of love. But we are to honor the emperor or the honor the government and we're, but we're also to honor all human beings and so what we owe to the government we also owe to our fellow citizens our fellow human beings and uh, it isn't the fear of the lord it is an absolute and that that romans 13 which is a wonderful passage i i, I agree with it <laughs> the apostle paul was certainly speaking as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there. Uh, but, you know, he says that we are to honor, we are to obey government, honor those who are in authority over us, and to obey them. They're there to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. And that's right. That's a very important task of government. The problem is that we do have governments. And, you know, the clear example there is Nazi Germany. I think Putin's Russia right now where a general pattern in the life of a nation is that they're rewarding those who do evil and they're punishing those who do good. And when the Bible says that governments are ordained of God, uh, we might say that Putin is uh, violating his ordination vows, <laughs> uh, just doing the, the opposite of 
the proper form of government so that Romans 13 isn't simply telling Christians how they ought to view government, but they're also telling governments how they ought to view themselves in the light of God's will for, for government. And, uh, and so I, I think honor is a very important thing uh, that we ought to pray for government. Uh, I, I love that passage in Jeremiah where the people of Israel have been carted off into a, a wicked pagan society. And they're saying, how do we sing the Lord's song here in this wicked city of Babylon? And then Jeremiah comes to them and says, hey, folks, here's the, here's the deal. Uh, you are to uh, plant vineyards and eat the, the produce of the vineyards. You're to build houses and live in them. He's saying, you know, you got to settle in here. It's not going to be over very quickly. Marry off your sons and daughters and multiply in the land. And then he says this, and seek the welfare. And the word there is uh, shalom. Seek the shalom of the city in which I have placed you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its shalom, you will find your shalom. And as you guys know, uh, that word shalom is uh, like flourishing, you know, seek the, the God-ordained flourishing for human life and for collective life. Yeah, Rich, there, you know, I, I know you've traveled to Washington, D.C. on lots of occasions. I've been there a handful of times. And I admit that there's a lot that I see in D.C. that is really inspiring. I love the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument and the Capitol. And, but I also... It, I find it somewhat depressing when I look at the vastness of the size of the government buildings in D.C. Some of these buildings, as you, as you know, take up you know two or three city blocks. And I realize, when I realize the vastness of our federal government, uh, I, just, I, I find I'm so sort of overwhelmed by that sometimes. And I wonder, in your view, what does the Bible have to say about the proper scope and size? Of government, I don't know that it says a lot on the subject. Uh, you know, my my sense is that government has a, in the light of the scriptures, has a positive, a positive assignment from God. In Psalm seventy-two, you know, uh, that a good government will have policies that will be like the rain falling upon the newly mown grass. You know, that there's a nurturing side of government that's very important. The government ought to promote things that help human beings to flourish. So, uh, obviously, reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. Our government does have the sword that it does not bear in vain, all of that kind of thing. But uh, when people say to me, government is too big, and I'm not, I'm not arguing with you on that because I have the same sense. But we really need to get down into the details of that. You know, what does that mean? My daughter-in-law is the curator at the Clinton Presidential Library. Wow. Little Rock. And she's, uh, uh, she works for the National Archives. And uh, I'm glad that there's a National Archives. And it's huge. I mean, in Washington, you know, the Smithsonian and all of that, that's all a part of the National Archives. And I'm glad that there's all that stuff. I'm glad that there are, uh, uh, there are national parks like Yellowstone and, and the like. Um, 
I'm glad that there are, uh, I'm, I'm glad that there's a Department of Motor Vehicles. I'm, I'm glad that there's a Social Security Administration, you know. So when people say, oh, government's way too big, we got to cut back. I want to know what they're, what they're thinking of when they say that, because uh, we really need to get into very specific kinds of things. And I think the things that I've just mentioned are a part of the nurturing task of government uh, to uh, maintain a collective memory through archiving documents, to maintain natural beauties that we can enjoy, to maintain uh, decent uh, automobile policies and, and, and the like. And uh, so I, I think part of that is just simply talking about it rather than getting carried away with the rhetoric of government is too big or it's better to have no government than uh, one that pushes us around too much. You know, I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on patriotic songs, symbols and celebrations in the worship service within the church, because clearly there's division on this. Some people think it's a way of honoring our government, being thankful for what we have in America. Others would say it's an unhealthy and even unbiblical merging of our country and politics potentially with our faith. Where do you stand and why? Well, I take, I take a very pragmatic view of that, really. I mean, I know people, I'm going to use an example of a pastor, you know, he says, I hate these days, you know. I dread it when uh, Memorial Day comes, and then when that's over with, i got to deal with Fourth of July, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, you know, to sing some of those songs, God shed his grace on thee. God mend thine every flaw. Uh, there are good things in those patriotic songs. and. Let's face it, they're going to be there anyway. Uh, the pastor can get up and say, I don't want to do a veteran's acknowledgement anymore. I don't want to sing patriotic songs in church. And by the way, get that flag out of here. Uh, what they're going to get out of there is the pastor. You know? And so I want to say if, if your church does have a flag in it, it might be good on a certain Sunday for the pastor to say, hey, let's look at that flag. What does that mean to you? You know, it tells me some things about where we are. And that's a good thing. It's a reminder that we're gathered here as Christian citizens of this nation, pledging our, our, our absolute obedience to the God of the Bible. And uh, kind of using it as a, as a, a show and tell, <laughs> as an object. And uh, to say, you know, isn't it wonderful that we just sang that song, God, mend thine every flaw. And we're not called to be uncritical citizens. We're called to be citizens who pray for grace, unmerited favor toward a nation that does have flaws. Yeah, flaws and in the way it's treated some people in the past and, and flaws of the ways in which we go about our business these days. And so I want to say um, much of that has to do with taking on the teaching ministry of the church as opposed to just either being in favor of flags in church or against flags in church. Yeah, that, yeah that's helpful. Um, yeah, one, Rich, one final question for you. Uh, in the midst of our polarized culture, you know, especially as we, as we approach election years, um, what, what encouragement or admonition would you give to the Christian community 
in the, in the midst of our polarized culture and politics? I think we need to find, this will sound trivial, but we need to find safe places to talk to each other and not to identify each other in terms of our, how we voted, you know, but rather uh, to get beneath the surface. Uh, you know, in my book, I, I quote this wonderful line from the Christmas Carol, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. And uh, political life is full of hopes and fears. You know, I, I was on National Public Radio one time uh, debating uh, a gay activist. And you know, we went at it. We disagreed about things. But I finally, I said, you know, just let me, let me kind of put the pause button on here. Wouldn't it be great if you and I, talking to my debate partner there, if you and I could just shut the door and your people aren't listening to cheer you on and my people aren't listening to cheer me on, we just talked. You know what I wish we could talk about? I wish that um, I could ask you, what is it about me as an evangelical Christian that you find so distressing in your fellow citizens? And then you can ask me, what is it about what my partner and I want out of life that you find so threatening to our ability to live together in in the same country? so that we get beneath the surface there of, you know, he's gay and I'm not, and really talk about the things that are that 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 motivate us in these advocacies. And uh, he said, "I, I, that's wonderful." He said, I, "I wish we could talk about that." Well, you know, the there came a point. This was a national NPR program. But there came a point where they they opened it up to phone calls, and the first phone call. It's a person who said, I don't know why you've got this Mao on there. Tomorrow, are you going to have a slave owner defending slavery? Ouch. Wow. You know, my my gay counterpart said, let me handle this. And he said to the caller, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. He's talking to us about things that we really need to discuss together if we're really going to get along in this country. And that kind of put down is just totally inappropriate. Well, we're pointing there to hopes and fears uh, that I think are so important. And as Christians, you know, as I look at people who voted differently than I did, uh, I disagree with with some of their policy views and why they voted uh, the way they did. But, you know, their grandparents who are like I am, my wife and I, we're concerned about how our grandkids have been being raised in this country and uh, what kind of schools kids are going to go to. I mean, those are legitimate fears. And we need to be talking about that. And furthermore, we need to find ways of talking. You know, if I say to you, why'd you vote for Trump? Oh, you're immediately on the, uh, on the defense. But I've said to you, you know, I know you vote for Trump, but uh, help me to understand that better. Is this, is this what you would say about why it was important to vote for him? And you're asking them to, to test you out to see whether you, you, you're really understanding where they're coming from. 
And I think that's a very important way of uh, trying to get around things in uh, in the Christian community uh, where we can begin to talk to each other about these things from our hearts, our, 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 the centers of our, our hopes and fears. And that's so important to be able to get at these days. And uh, typically the conversations uh, you're immediately put, putting someone on the on the defense. I just mentioned, you know, one thing that I learned from young life uh, people. Uh, I once heard them say, you know, if you want to know what a 15 year old teenage girl believes about God, don't say to her, "What do you believe about God?" Because she's going to be put on on the spot. You know, and she's going to, oh, I'm not not quite sure. I don't want to sound stupid about this. You know, and and. Uh, but if you ask her, what do your friends believe about God? Suddenly she's going to become an amateur social psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to find out about what, what she really believes. You know? And we need to find things like that to help people really talk as opposed to putting them on the defense. You know, Why do you believe that? Uh, that really doesn't work very well. That's such a helpful insight, especially about the the need to have a solid understanding of someone as a as sort of precondition to moving forward with any substantive discussion. We have an informal rule around Biola here with when we're engaged in difficult conversations. We're not allowed to critique one another until we have restated their position back to them to their satisfaction. That's right. And we think that we think that's a pretty good rule uh, that yeah. get, that gets us started in the right direction. That's wonderful. And, you know, the underlying assumption there is that you're really trying to learn from this. That you're not trying to win an argument or put a put down. But you're trying to understand where that person is, what's going on in that person's life, what in their journey has led them to certain kind of viewpoints and the like. Here, here. Well, it's not, 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 not exactly for the faint of heart, I will say. Uh, it takes courage to do that, and we, that's one thing Sean and I have appreciated about you in all the years that uh, you've you've modeled this so well yourself, um, and engaging with people who think differently and doing it with respect and with gentleness, uh, but also with with insight and truthfulness too. So, Rich, thanks so much for being with us. I want to commend to our listeners your book, "How to Be a Patriotic Christian," subtitled "Love of Country as Love of Neighbor." Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation and blessings to you. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our master's in the Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Rich Mao, Give us a rating on your podcast app and please share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening and remember, think biblically about everything. Everything.